I'm Jancis Robinson. Welcome to JancisRobinson.com, the podcast. Maynard James Keenan is best known as a musician, but he's also successfully devoted to high elevation wine growing in Arizona. Having lived in Arizona and an admirer of Keenan's wines, Elaine Chacan Brown asks him why he's chosen to grow wine in the Grand Canyon state. Maynard James Keenan, I am so happy to see you. You're in the middle of harvest in Arizona. Thank you so much for making time. No problem. And you, of course, are well known as being the lead singer for multiple bands, including Tool, Pucifer, and A Perfect Circle. But we're here today to talk entirely about your work in wine, which actually is how I also got to know you. One of the things that's really interesting about what you do is you fell in love with a small mining town on top of a mountain, Jerome, Arizona. And after some time there, getting to know the place, you realized that it would be a great spot to try your hand at wine. And one of the vineyards that you planted, the Judith Block, is terraced on the side of a mountain in Jerome, Arizona. So I was hoping you could tell us just more about the work you're doing there, what compelled you to plant the Judith Block, and why wine in Arizona? I I think what most people will probably say as you're talking to them, two prominent responses it's a family affair and you got into it because you're it's generational or if you got into it on your own it's most likely because somehow wine chose you and i i can't trace it all of a sudden i was just planting grapes having been around the world seen some sites seen some places seen the process specifically at pegasus bay in new zealand i went you know one of the promoters reps can't remember who they're going to be mad now that I don't remember who it was. Uh, it took me to see the process and just watching the forklift, the hopper to the stemmer into whatever you know bin tank. It dawned on me, I love wine, and this doesn't look like something I couldn't navigate. So I kind of dove in, planted vineyards in 2002, staged in the cellar around 2004, started making my own wines in 2009. And I think you probably know, like like anything else, there's you have an aptitude for it or you don't. And having now dove in going, yeah, guys, come, come out and help us out, work, work harvest. You hire people, you hire interns, you have friends come out to work it. Literally one out of 20, maybe 50 ends up sticking around. It's just not, it's just not for everybody. Well, and it's a lot of physical labor too. But yeah, but I think it's a lot of, for me, it's I'm really good at logistics, uh, mental hopscotch and being able to change directions in the moment being very adaptable in the moment. If you're not adaptable in the midst of all this chaos, you're screwed. Um, and able to see the long game and, and the, the immediate game, uh, to identify things that are doing well in your area, um, having the patience to wait to see if they're doing well in your area. I see a lot of guys, I've had vineyards for like three or four years that are just started producing three or four years, and then they pull them out because they don't believe in the potential of whatever it was they planted. It's like, that's just not enough time. You don't know. There's no way. Well, and it should be said, too, that when you started planting vineyards in Arizona, there really weren't that many vineyards in Arizona and definitely not very much in that Verde Valley area. But just in the state at the time, the industry was still very young. There weren't a lot of vineyards. And so it was a big leap for you to plant in Jerome, in the Verde Valley, but also at such high elevation. Yeah. And, you know, land is a little more expensive, a lot more expensive up in the Verde Valley. but Arguably, there's at least three very distinct growing regions in this state. 
we have three AVAs, but that I don't think it's limited to that. I think there's other areas that once we really find our groove with what grows here, and then apply that template to other areas here and make the adjustments. But that, you know, the areas are it's such a diverse geology here. Yeah. So the first vineyards in Arizona went in in the area of Sonoida, and then they kind of start moving east into Wilcox. And then, as we mentioned, you also have vineyards up north in Verde Valley. But those three areas are really distinctive growing regions, and you're growing both in Wilcox and Verde Valley. Could you tell us just a little bit more about what kinds of conditions are you dealing with? Uh, well, the, the biggest challenge is there's going to be a late spring frost. 100% there's going to be. So if you, uh, our farming practices, we've kind of adjusted our farming practices to make sure that uh, our vines, when they go to sleep after harvest, they go to sleep with plenty of energy. Their bellies are full. So when they wake up in the spring, we're not having to cram nutrients and do all this stuff to kind of get them back in shape because that's not enough time for the vine to actually absorb all the all the armor that it needs to combat that spring frost. A spring frost um, or a fall freeze that can actually kill a vine. And yeah. so we're talking about Arizona has such cold weather in certain times of year that it could actually damage the vineyard. Correct. We have, there's always going to be something around 10 degrees, 15 degrees in the first week of May. In Fahrenheit. It's uh-huh. going to happen. Whether it happens directly on your vineyard or not is another question. We're farming at high elevation. So we're farming anywhere between 3,000 feet and 5,000 feet generally. So because we have elevation, of course, we get snow uh, in the winter. So we, you know, we also do risk that snap that we might get in November. But again, if the vines are healthy, they have an immune system, you know, uh, basically, that can come back from that. So we might get secondary buds pushing, depending on the frost, depending on the, the winter freeze. One of the blocks here, we got hammered so bad that we're not sure we're going to get any fruit on it next year because it got frosted so bad. But the vines are still healthy. They just lost their fruit. The trick is just understanding that those challenges, understanding you're going to have some of these weird things you didn't expect. Um, we drop a lot of fruit in our sites. We're really trying to pay attention, variety and location to figure out what that vine wants to carry um, to make sure it's super comfortable and not be greedy about it. As soon as you get greedy, the quality drops, you lose fruit because you have too much fruit on it. And right now, uh, 422, this is a very wet year. Down in Wilcox at the Buell Memorial site, uh, a 70 acre site in southern arizona four to three hundred feet we've had straight rain for two weeks straight well and that's something about arizona a lot of people don't realize too that end of summer early fall there's huge monsoon season but that falls right around harvest time for grapes yeah so if you're greedy and you set too much fruit you lost all of it because all it takes is one bunch to go bad that rot can take over in less than 48 hours because you get the monsoons but then you get the sun that comes out the next morning. And if the fruit isn't dry and it doesn't have any kind of air circulation around it, it just turns to powder. It's just, it's screwed immediately. So we should clarify when a vine has more grapes on it, it ripens those grapes more slowly. So mm-hmm. if you're leaving a lot of fruit to try to get more crop, you're slowing the ripening and then you're getting hit hard by monsoon season and, and that creates mildew, mold and rot if, right. at the worst of it. Yes, I think the the big equation here, the challenge here is understanding we do have sun and the sun will will burn your berries. So you need canopy, but you need airflow underneath the canopy because of the monsoon. So there's that that equation of like you want your little solar panels to be to see the sun so they can ripen properly. And then you want airflow around the fruit. One of the things I really admire about the work you're doing with wine, too, is just how you work with your team. 
And you've had a long-standing vineyard manager, Chris Turner, that you work closely with. And Jesse Noble's down in Southern Arizona, Jesse and Chris. Yeah. So Chris Turner up North, Jesse Noble down South. And you've really given them a lot of ground to do what's best for the site, to speak to other experts around the world, even to learn how to, how do we adjust what they've learned where they are to improve what we're doing in Arizona? Because Arizona is still early enough that, you know, you and your team and other producers in the state are actually at the forefront of figuring out how do we grow in a high elevation desert that has spring frost and harvest monsoons. It's a whole new world, really. Yeah, you can you can get all kinds of advice from UC Davis. It, it doesn't necessarily apply here. I mean, it's some of it's good advice, but until they actually set up shop here and really dig in for a couple of seasons to see what actually happens here and look at our data, they're not really going to have any good advice for you. But, you know, the, the good news is because of the elevation, because just the overall, you know, I guess you call it terroir, although we don't really have a lot, a lot of information yet to really kind of start formulating that word here. We, you know, we're Mediterranean. So some of the stuff we have to grow that does well are those Mediterranean kind of Spanish, Italian, Southern Rome grapes. You know, Pinot Noir is not the wisest thing to plant here. I'm sure there's a microclimate for it, but why? Like just figure out the thing that wants to be here and is, is versatile and flexible here. One of the things that you've really done a lot of is trying out unexpected varieties. Arizona kind of first planted the obvious grapes, Cabernet, Chardonnay, and over time has really been shifting to what you're describing, those kind of Spanish and Italian originating varieties. And so could you tell us a little bit more about like, what are some of the grapes you're most excited about, some of the wines you're most excited about that you've been growing there? Well, I mean, a couple, That's there's two answers to that. And I'll, I'll go down the practical one first. You go to some region that has a, a grape that it doesn't really grow like a weed, but it's like, it's a resilient grape. It's generous. And when you really do some work and massage it, it can be very elegant, right? So you're looking for that balance of, of what can you put on the table for a lower price point? What can you do some extra work with and make it a nice high-end, uh, desirable, unique, uh, expressive wine worth talking about? At the end of the day, those both have to be delicious. They can't be something you have to explain. So in our region, it seems like things like Tempranillo, Garnacha, Sangiovese, Nebbiola, Barbera, we're, we're able to get the really cool, unique stuff out of them, but we're also able to go, let's just make a big batch of something that we can sell to pay the bills, keep the lights on while we're aging this other crazy thing. But then you really want to find out, so what's, what's the cool one that grows well here, but it's going to be a little more work to do, but it's undeniable. That's always going to be the puzzle for us here. I've, for me and my seller, it's things like Nebbiolo and Sagrantino and Alianico, uh, Vermentino. Malvasia is the workhorse, but you know, weird things like Albarino and Malvasia, uh, Vermentino are, are doing really well here. Honestly, one of the great surprises in my <laughs> wine career has been tasting Malvasia from Arizona and falling completely in love with it. I have taken different expressions of Malvasia, literally to tastings around the world. And consistently, it's a standout. You know, winemakers from other countries, sommeliers from other countries, wine lovers from other countries, you know, I'll pour it for them without saying what it is. Immediately, they're in love with it. And then they have to know what it is. And it's the big shock. It's from Arizona. It's fantastic. Yeah. I really see it as one of the top grapes coming out of that, that region. So if you look at that grape and where it grows well, and where it expresses well, the obvious thing is take a step to the right and the left and figure out what else grows in that region. So that's why we've explored everything from it's uh, we're pretty convinced it's, it's the Piemonte clone of Malvasia. So plant Barbera, plant Nebbiolo, 
and things of that ilk, and then figure out that little strata that goes across the Mediterranean, but what else grows in that area. And so we're seeing a lot of success with those things, with Malvasia being the clue. That's fantastic. I like that way of describing things too, you know, thinking about how do emerging regions continue to evolve. But when you do find that grape that does fantastic, it becomes the clue. And you look at what else grows in the regions with it. You know, as a, as a grower, as a winemaker, I'm sure you can perform some magic and pull something out of your hat that might not necessarily want to be here. You can probably pull it off, but you're looking for that one that kind of pulls itself off. And Malvasia tends to be that thing. We've done everything with it. I've done an orange wine. I've done an early pick, still white. I've I've done a really early pick and blended a 50-50 with Chardonnay and done a, a pet nat that's just killing it. People are loving it. It's a total sneak attack. Keep with that in front of them. And it's this gorgeous kind of Italian sparkling wine expression, not necessarily a champagne expression. Okay, so now what else can we grab that's going to be that versatile thing? Barbera, Cezau. Cezau is doing great because you're looking for that acid and you're looking for that that beef to kind of add into things rather than using, you know, relying on Petit Syrah, which tends to rot way more quickly than a Cezau does. Well, so let's step to the side and, and talk about your kind of life experience a little more too. You, you know, of course you're known for, you know, your career in recording and, and, you know, as a creative artist, not just in terms of music, but in so many other ways too, that really show up in how you present your music, but also how you present your wines. But long ago, I think I remember that you actually grew up with um, a family that was really into gardening, into food, connected mm -hmm. to farming in some way. Could you tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah, I, I grew up, well, you know, I was born in Ohio. And then when I figured out that I was born in Ohio, I ran to Michigan. No <laughs> offense, Ohio. <laughs> had to go north, get closer to the lakes, a little more interesting yeah, I, terrain. I had to go up there. So I lived in uh, in, in Mason County, Michigan, right, a little small town called Scottville, directly across Lake Michigan from Milwaukee. Uh, a lot of farming there. Uh, hogs, cattle, um, apples, peaches, cherries, asparagus. It's an asparagus central there. Morel mushrooms would grow right in our front yard because right there we had the old apple orchard up front so like when the season was right the conditions are right we would gather morels right on the front yard the gourmet mushroom factory uh, is right there in scottville so quite a bit of the mushrooms that get shipped around that whole region come from scottville uh and you know of course we had our vegetable garden there as well uh, my dad taught me all about cutworms uh, trying to get our corn to grow. Uh, and we're right in the middle of a huge corn field right there. The, our neighbors have acres and acres of corn. And you're surrounded by, of course, deer everywhere. So it's, and it's very rural and very farming. My impression, though, is that that early experience with growing food and being in an agricultural community, but also being able to grow your own food, that, of course, that connects to vineyards. But actually, the part that I found really inspiring and interesting was that it seems to me it's tied to the work you've been doing more recently in Arizona with food crops, both growing your own, but also helping to support local food crops. And, and that's been factoring into restaurant work that you've been investing in, too. Could you tell us more about that? Yeah, we have several greenhouses. We're actually building uh, another one up on the hill in Cottonwood. And, you know, the obvious stuff that you grow in those things, a lot of greens, microgreens, herbs, of course, you know, basil and whatnot. You have cherry tomatoes. We have every kind of pepper you can think of. Sweet peppers are kind of the cornerstone. But, you know, Arizona, you can grow hot peppers all day. It's just quite a bit of those kind of things. And actually, we have... <laughs> We have an old tiny house and an airstream that the airstream was just not salvageable. But so we 
completely uh, reworked it. And the Airstream and the tiny house are our mushroom factory. So we're growing uh, oyster mushrooms in the small trailers on site. Uh, we have orchards on site too. So I do a cider from all of our apples. We have about 40 apple trees. We just planted a bunch more. I cure my own olives for the tasting rooms. 20 producing olive trees. Now we planted another 25, I think. So those will be ready to start producing olives probably in another three years. We do mead because there's there's a lot of honey that's uh, in Arizona. Uh, straight sparkling mead in a can. You know, so we're trying as much as we can to bring in you know the local uh, flora and fauna to kind of go with the wines because it does go hand in hand. So a lot of this is being channeled through the Merkin Osteria. Yeah, American Osteria. We're actually building the new version of that up on the hill in Cottonwood called the Trotteria because we're going to add a we're going to add a pizza oven up there. We have the Scottsdale Merkin uh, location in Old Town Scottsdale that has the pizza oven and a smaller menu, but the Osteria has more handmade pastas and all of our garden items uh, on the menu there. Of course, in Caduceus up in Jerome, there's always small plates that uh, Brian and Alan are, are putting together uh, from some of our produce. I want to say we have about 40, 50 ducks. So we love a, a lot of our pasta, the yolk, the egg yolk pastas that we get are using the duck eggs and we use the whites to make some quiche. Once we move with the Osteria up to the hill to become the Trotteria, the existing building will become a, a brunch place. We just ordered a coffee roaster uh, to put in there. So we're going to actually roast our own coffees and have um, a lot of the menu items, again, will be from our gardens. You know, you've helped create these destination restaurants that have really honestly helped reinvigorate some of these tiny towns in northern Arizona. You know, Scottsdale in kind of central Arizona outside Phoenix, you know, obviously that was well established and you have it, the Merkin tasting room there. But up north, Cottonwood has been a town that's kind of struggled to take off in different ways. And there's been different efforts over time to bring in different kinds of food programs, like a great cheese shop or things like that. Mm. But you've been able to invest in this kind of multi-level approach with, you know, the greenhouses, the the birds, you know, now building a pizza oven, these different efforts. And it's helped make Cottonwood a destination for food. And, and that helps then in turn support the tasting rooms too. Yeah, I think it's 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 kind of the way I'm making wine. Uh, this is I'll probably go off into a tangent here. Uh, I respond, you know, I'm Italian, so I respond more to those acid-forward, um, food-friendly wines. And some of the way we've been approaching the winemaking here has been that earlier pick that was, you know, inspired to me kind of by Taurus picking his Grenache early and doing longer extended macerations. Yeah, Tara Sakota from Australia. Yeah. And it ends up just accidentally working right into our favor because when we see monsoons coming and maybe our bricks are hovering around, you know, 22 bricks and a Grenache, I'm not scared of picking it at 22 because I know what's possible. Taras would pick Grenache at 21 and a half, 22 and a half. and come out with this amazing, elegant wine. So we're not scared of those bricks. And, you know, most of the California equation is, you know, 26, 27 bricks, big, huge things. Um, during COVID lockdown, all of a sudden it's like, oh, we think it's over. <laughs> so yeah, you have a bunch of friends over and we were celebrating the uh, the end of the end of the world. And I opened up a, a, a Grange 1955, uh, a Bin 7, which is a total unicorn uh, Penfolds wine. And I've been, uh, yeah, been 68. That's the full on unicorn. Yeah. Well, and it was just, that was still vibrant. It was still alive. It was still fantastic wine, but it was not what you've come to expect from Australian wines. So we got the Foss, you know, the Ian Foss in the lab. So we're like all, you know, half drunk. Let's go test this wine and see what it's all about. And what we found was that 
But then 60A, which goes for insane money at auction now, was still vibrant, still alive, still drinking wonderfully. Uh, the Ben 7, not quite as much. And the, and the 1955 Grange, great. Do you have a sense of when Ben 60A would have been made? I don't remember. 60, uh, 1960s. It was 60s. Yeah, now. Okay. 60s wine. Still drinking beautifully. All, all of those, we actually opened up in 1982, I think, as well. But all of them on the FOSS were all under 12.2 alcohol. So just for those listening, a FOSS just is a machine where you can check kind of the alcohol level and the chemistry of a wine. That you And you have this because, of course, you're making wine. So like you're looking at these wines, they're still alive. They're still kicking. The acidity is still where it should be. The pH hasn't climbed up too much. And the alcohols were fairly low. And these things were still alive. And I don't think even Taurus had had wines like that. I don't know. But he understood the chemistry back in some of all the, all the early Bordeaux that you have read about. And they're just like these stories that you've heard. Those are all under 12% alcohol wines. And that just happens to play into the challenges that we have in Arizona, trying to get that fruit off the vine before the monsoon comes and ruins it. So for me, it was an eye-opening experience, understanding the approach we're already taking of trying to dodge the problems, right? If you look at the alcohol, the 12.5, that means they were picking those wines at around 21, 22 bricks, which by today's standards, people would lose their minds. if They, they, they think I'm crazy when I'm picking wines that are 22 bricks. They think, are, are you impatient? Well, and so just to clarify, the bricks is a measurement of the sugar in the fruit when at harvest and the sugar in the fruit then ferments into alcohol. So it's a sign of what the alcohol level in the finished wine is likely to be. Right. And so you're saying you pick really early, but actually this experience of tasting these older wines that had held up so well, you realize you were right on track with what they had been doing too. Correct. And it just so happens logistically that it works for us because of the monsoons. So if I crop less early in the season, the vine is working less hard to ripen that fruit. We have less fruit hanging, so it's not getting humid and risking rot. If we do have rain, there's a whole fruit zone that's been leaf pulled. And so there's airflow around that thing to dry it out. We have full canopies protecting it from the sun. So the little solar panels are collecting their energy to ripen that fruit. So we're actually picking pretty early. So right now, I believe we're about 65 tons in in my cellar. In mid-August. We only do about 120 tons total. And so we're already beyond halfway. And that's because of the farming practices we're doing. And we're trying to dodge those monsoons. It just tends to go hand in hand with these beautiful, ageable, historic wines. Now, couple that with being served with our local cuisine. We have a high-acid beautiful food wine that can be drunk now or can be laid down for later, but it's giving you the local experience uh, on steroids. One of the first times you and I met, you actually were home testing pasta recipes. You know, one of the things a lot of people don't realize is Arizona has an amazing um, grain uh, agricultural community. There's a lot of grains indigenous to the Southwest that grow there. And then others, you know, that grow around the world that do really well in Arizona You've been able to kind of channel the local grain crops into the work you're doing with Osteria through handmade pasta there as well. And then, like you said, it goes so well with the wines you're making. Yeah. You know, the hard part is people come by and they come through and they want they want what they want, right? That's just as we're being accustomed. If, you're, if you want something, you ask Jeff Bezos and he hands it to you in a couple of days, right? So that's just a, a poison that's part of the American culture, probably a lot of places, but 
I, I live here, so I see it here. So the idea of a, an actual seasonal menu, like a daily menu, is rare. Those places that can pull it off do really well because the clientele that they're building understands the temporary nature of, of agriculture. And they're coming in for what, what they have today and how they as artists are able to put those things together and present them to you. And by the way, here's a local, here's our wine from this place that's taken us six years to put it on the table in front of you. You've been part of this very long-term vision of helping to bring that mindset to Arizona, helping people see Arizona as having that potential for seasonal menus and matched to local wines. But how has that process been for you? It's a, it's a very long road investment that you've been making. Yeah, I mean, it's so much. It's so easy just to to order food off the shamrock truck. Carrots that come pre-cut, you know. <laughs> I get it. I get it. But uh, the problem is filling in the gaps, and we try our best to make it be from farms down south. But when we have limited land up north and limited resources for people to work, well, and food crops and for the vineyards, it's an everyday project, not just a seasonal one. Yeah, and that's. That was one of the things during COVID lockdown was the people we just had to explain to people that you know, we're, we're working. The vines don't care about this virus. We need to be out there dealing with all those things that have to happen with or without this global thing. We've mentioned Terrasakota so many times. I feel like we should take a little time to to talk about him. You know, he was a winemaker there in Australia. And one of the things that I admire about what you've done is the two of you became friends. You started working with him in his you know, wine for a few seasons there. And what I love about it was that it really was a collaborative thing. You, My understanding is you saw it as an opportunity for you to learn, but also to help bring a little more attention to his work too. Could you tell us a little bit about that collaboration about his work? And, and it's very clearly continued to inspire the work you're doing in Arizona. The beautiful thing about people like Taurus, people that are wired like that, is they might be a master of their craft, but they're never going to correct you about the way, the process that you have doing your thing. They're going to listen and pay attention because they got where they are because they're in a way they're a sponge. You'll end up filtering out the stuff that's irrelevant later, but he was that sponge. He showed up and they were on, you know, they were over here selling wine. In the States. Yeah, they were, they were traveling around the States and they made the mistake of coming to my house uh, before a big day down in Phoenix. And I have a pretty extensive cellar. So his next day did not go well. But I poured him our Caduceus Premier Paso, which is a predominantly Syrah with just a dash of like 5% Malvasia Bianca in the wine. And he was so fascinated by that, that white wine component to that Syrah and a light bulb went off in his head and he, he wanted to do a collaboration. He secured uh, Grenache from an amazing site in Adelaide Hills. Uh, they don't have Malvasia, so he opted for uh, Gewurz, I think. Yeah, Gewurz Trevener. Yeah. yeah, so he co-fermented that, but he was showing me the process of, of wild ferments and extended maceration, explaining that if you have to pick it too early and it gets a, it gets a little grassy with the stems and everything included, he said, don't worry about it. Just leave, <laughs> make sure you just leave it on it, leave it on there for six weeks minimum. And I'm like, this guy's drunk. <laughs> <laughs> but he's right, because then it kind of polymerizes after that amount of time. So those grassy things become these elegant, crazy things that, you know, because some people have a, they like the better end of a bread, right? They like those <laughs> very floral. The lifted parts, yeah. Well, the thing he was doing with the extended maceration with the early, early fruit 
you were getting uh, a version of those beautiful floral aromatics that, that you know, if you'd have pressed it two weeks earlier, would have gotten grass. It would have just been undrinkable mess. But he changed my mind on it. So because of that relationship, now I do a Grenache, this whole cluster wild ferment, and then aged in uh, concrete egg for two months called Aravada. And that's all because of my relationship with Taurus. So Taurus Akota um, founded Akota Cellars. And in 2017, you and Jancis and myself were all at an event together. And I helped introduce the two of you. And you poured us that Grenache Gewurztraminer co-ferment. Yeah. And yeah. I was there when Jancis tasted it for the first time. I have to admit. <laughs> oh, she didn't do that. But I have to admit the look on her face and the total surprise of that combination. It's like one of the great memory treasures in my mind. It's just that the image of her and the surprise of tasting a Grenache Gewurztraminer wine. But I have to say, like, you know, that wine and and your work with, you know, Sarah and Malvasia, these were like unheard of combos at the time. And now a few years later, I'm starting to see this sort of mini trend of people really, the willingness to experiment more and more has really taken hold. I see it here in California. It's happening in New Zealand, more people in Australia, you there in Arizona, you know, worldwide people are realizing let's, let's do this creative experimental work. And the truth is that people like you there in Arizona and Taurus in Australia, like helped open those doors and get us thinking in a different sort of way. Yeah, he's he's brilliant that way. Just he's open minded and trying things. So on the heels of that, even now we're doing things. So and it's all logistics in the cellar. Things come in. I have tanks that are specific sizes. They say got a half a bin over here or something, a half a bin of something over there. I've been doing for our outlier series. It's a caduceus kind of experimental series. At least three or four of these every year, where I'll take Malvasia and do 50-50 co-ferment on skins with Tempranillo or Petitsara or whatever. We just want to see what's going to happen. What happens when you do Malvasia with Barbera 50-50? So it's just an experiment. I would say 25% is an absolute disaster. <laughs> but the, you know, the other 75 are like, wow, I, had ne I never expected that it would turn out this amazing. And you know, do you pursue it further? Yeah. I mean, we're going to, we'll figure it out. One of the things we haven't said yet is each of the different wine brands that you're actually making. So could you talk us through those? Caduceus Cellars is, I predominantly make it here at my house, Bunker, you know, about 8,000 cases, uh, 7,000 cases a year, mostly from Northern Arizona fruit. So fruit grown between 3,200 feet and 5,000 feet, predominantly Mediterranean Spanish uh, varieties. We have Merkin Vineyards, uh, which is predominantly from the Buell Memorial site down in Wilcox, which is 4,300 feet, an elevated playa. Uh, there's 48 wine works named after the 48th state of uh, Arizona. That was, it started off as a co-op, kind of an alternating proprietorship. Uh, but we had several graduates come out of that incubator, if you will. Uh, Chateau Tumbleweed, Bodega Pierce, uh, Seculum Cellars, uh, Oddity Wine Collective, Heartwood came out of it. Those are all other people's brands, all now. People's brands now. So that came mm -hmm. out of that. But, you know, now we're making some changes up here. So the 4A Winery is now going to be a standalone brand. And we're doing a lot of Northern Arizona Italian varieties for those wines up here. We also do a whole canned program for Pussifer, uh, a lot of sparkling wines. So we have white, red, rosé, cider, and mead sparkling in a can. We just won a gold medal for the mead at the Texan. Well, and you want a judge's selection, one of the top wines in the world for another wine at Texom as well. We're convenient Chupacabra won uh, the judge's selection. 
So I think, you know, I think uh, just candidly speaking, uh, I think a lot of those contests are, I have a lot of friends that enter the contest because they want the medal. They want to show off the medal. But for me, those contests are more about putting those wines in front of experts. So even if you don't win a medal, some of the comments we've gotten back, you know, kind of behind the scenes comments are that after everything's done and people can kind of circle back and start looking at what, you know, unveiling wines and seeing what they are, we'll get a lot of compliments after the fact because they get a chance to sit down with those wines by themselves. You know, of course, they're always surprised because they don't think Arizona can grow wine. It's interesting to see some of the comments come back after the fact that have nothing to do with it. So for me, that's the goal of those contests is to put those wines in front of people because now they're going, I need to get to Arizona. I need to go check that out to see I'm tasting all these similar things in these wines between, you know, uh, Todd and Kelly Bostock and Kent Callaghan and Rune and, and uh, Sand Reckoner and Seculum and everybody, Chateau Templeweed. We're seeing a common thread in these Arizona grapes, but you need to come see it. And those people are the kind of motivated people, you know, Psalms for life. They'll make the track to go check it out. So I can show the medal to some people who just rolled up in a minivan, you know, going to go hike, but putting the wines in front of the people that really, that's their life. I think that's, that's the goal really. Well, and you've been able to use, you know, there's a lot of skepticism about so-called celebrity wines. But one of the things you've been able to do is kind of use your connections around the world to bring Arizona wine out and get it in front of people like you're talking about and help grow the industry, really bring attention to it. I appreciate how you have actually, you know, very clearly for everything you talk about in wine, you're so clearly involved, really hands on making the wine, growing the wine. <laughs> you're taking a break from harvest right this minute to talk to me. So thank you for that. Yeah, but, but what are the next steps? What is going to happen next for Caduceus, for Merkin, for Pussifer, for 48 Wineworks? Well, you know, again, we're trying to figure out um, what's going to do well here. And I think part of it is there's the political hurdles, there's the financial hurdles to really get it done. If there was some kind of state program to raise grants, which, you know, people are very scared of grants, but it'd be great to not have to write a $2 million check to find out if Falangina, uh, Radicchio, Verdejo, Fiano actually grows here. I would love to just plant a 20-acre block with a bunch of Italian, Spanish, white wines to see Caracante. What does it do here? I have no idea. But narrowing down what does well helps you narrow down what might do well. Uh, but it's a huge check to have to write, you know, 30 grand an acre, assuming you own the land and there's power and water to it already. When we first met, you made the joke that you go on tour as a musician so that you can invest in the next varieties you want to grow in the vineyard. Yeah, it's 100% true because it's very expensive and it's not all successes. We have as many failures as we have successes when it comes to sites, uh, varieties, approach. You know, it, took, it took us four years of growing Nebbiolo to realize that it wanted to be cane pruned. We're like, why, why isn't this shoot producing... Oh, look, this book that we should have read that Jantus wrote told us that and we didn't read it. Uh, you know, so now we're, you know, we're making a lot of mistakes, uh, but we're learning from them. So I think that's the the bigger hurdle. So the next step is we're trying to find that other couple white grapes in Arizona other than Mabicia that express differently to see what we can come up with as far as a variety of of white for the whole state. When you describe these challenges, you know, there's unique growing conditions that are hard to solve. It's expensive to try new things. Sometimes you lose a vineyard or you have to learn a whole new way of growing that variety. So why keep doing it? What keeps you motivated? Um, insanity. 
<laughs> straight up nuts. Uh, well, because the results are are worth it. You know, we've had a couple of wine writers or wine critics come out here um, unofficially. They just happen to be visiting friends and they're around. Hey, bring them in. And we do a blind sneak attack, you know, put all of our Tempranillos in a bag and go, we're, we're having an argument about which one of these Tempranillos is doing better than the other and what site's expressing better than the other. You know, we don't want to score. We just want you to rate these eight Tempranillos one to eight in terms of how you think they fit in this in the scene. So when he unbagged everything, the Unico, the Unico of Unico was the number one, obviously, because it's undeniable. And then the next one was a Caduceus. And then it was a Vega Sicilia. And then it was Caduceus, Caduceus, Vega Sicilia. So we weren't, we weren't bottom of the pack. And not, you know, I'm not looking for accolades. I'm just saying when you blind taste, double blind, it ends up resetting the bar and expectations for people. So they can't downgrade the Caduceus wine. And so to answer your question, why do I keep doing it? Moments like that, where we change minds. And it changed the landscape in Arizona. And the cool thing about all the stuff we're doing in Arizona, we talk to everybody. Everybody talks to us. We, we all get along because we're all doing business together. Um, and all that crap on the internet and all the crap on your phone, it doesn't exist when you're just, you're, you're growing things and creating things and producing things. And you need an infrastructure that's the support infrastructure. It's amazing how that like... You can take a deep breath and not have to deal with all that crap. Wine becomes the great unifier, the yeah. coalition builder. Yes. Yeah. Mayor James Keenan, thank you so much for making time in the middle of harvest to talk to us. You're making Caduceus, Merkin, Pucifer, and 4-8 Wineworks, some of which are in national distribution. People have been able to taste those wines internationally as well. Any tips on best ways for people to find you if they want to locate your work online or the wines themselves? Yeah, caduceus.org, uh, C-A-D-U-C-E-U-S uh, .org. We have a, a store locator. If we ship to your state, there'll be a list of, of who we can direct ship to. And then there'll be a list of wholesalers in that state and locations in those states. We're in some places in Canada, parts of Australia, and a German company just came through to, to take over to Germany and distribute throughout the EU. But I, I suspect it's all going to blow out right in Germany right away. But to find our wines domestically, caduceus.org. Thank you so much for making time. It's really been great to talk to you and super good to connect again too. Yes, please. And come out, come out whenever you can. I will. I'll be there as soon as possible now that it's easier to travel again. Yes. Good job. <laughs> This podcast was created, hosted, and produced by Elaine Chacan-Brown and me, Jancis Robinson. It's engineered and edited by Misha Stanton. Production assistance by Susan Castrava. Executive producers were Elaine Chacan-Brown, Sam Dagamanjin for Recurrent, and me for JancisRobinson.com. <laughs>